Be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. You might become a presidential appointee in the White House. You might step into a leadership role in a highly respected nonprofit search firm. You might achieve no end of success and discover that it all feels wrong. That's exactly what happened to today's guest, a woman who is described as an instigator, a motivator, and a provocateur who has never met a revolution she didn't like. After serving in Bill Clinton's White House, founding and running Nonprofit Professionals Advisory Group, and writing a book called Mission Driven for People Who Are Moving from Profit to Purpose, she listened to her inner voice and started living her own definition of success. She has helped to build a Montessori school, co-founded a women's philanthropic initiative, completed three charity-inspired marathons, and continues to set larger-than-life goals for herself and motivates others to push past limiting beliefs so they can live extraordinary lives. Her latest book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path and Live Your Best Life, has been described as a high-energy masterclass and brainstorming session that will help you transform your vision for your career and do work with purpose. Get ready for some high-octane learning with Laura Gassner-Odding. Laura, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Hey, I'm so glad to be here today. Well, me too. And I just found out, storytellers, that I'm a Bronx boy and Laura is a Brooklyn girl. So, Brooklyn girl, (laughs) why should people embrace the edge of incompetence? So I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old, and I spend a lot of time, as you might imagine, getting called from school and being told the things that my kids are not yet able to do. And you can tell yourself a story, which is, boy, my kids are a mess, or you could tell yourself the story, which is, my kids are exactly where they need to be. As adults, we get hired and paid and promoted and praised to live right in the center of our excellence, to do the thing for which we know how to do better than anybody else. Now, our kids spend all of their time learning the next thing. So you figured out pre-algebra, it's time for algebra. You figured out geometry, it's time for trigonometry. And they are constantly pushing and learning and living on the edge of their incompetence. And that's why their brains are plastic or elastic and, and, and are, are, are able to take on and grow and learn new things. And as adults, we get so comfortable with the thing we know how to do that we forget that the competence that we show and the thing we know how to do allows us to actually have some confidence in those bigger dreams. I love that answer. I also, I wish more parents would respond like that because a lot of them are going to respond by chastising the the kid, you know, and um, they heard that, well, you they, they did something wrong and they're going to make the kid feel wrong, right? You know, it helps that I was told early on that I wasn't good at math. That was the story I was told, so it was a story I believed. And so I never really went that far in math. So the truth is, I'm not smarter than a fifth grader in math, and my kids really are kind of on their own. So they have, they have to live on the edge of their incompetence, because their edge of their incompetence is so far beyond my competence, because I listened and I believed that story. So, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, as adults, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking, well, what's the worst that can happen? Oh, no, I shouldn't do it. But if you think, what's the worst that can happen, and let me make a plan for that, 
once you've make, made a plan for the worst that can happen, everything else is pretty much okay. That's contained risk. You know what you're going to do. So I'd rather people spend time planning for success rather than planning for failure. Like what's that old, uh, that old saying, whether you think you can or you can't? You're right. Yeah, it's true. I believe that fully, and I believe that we tell ourselves that story. And if we started to tell ourselves more of, well, I can, and I will, and then I do. Absolutely. Uh, I have a mentor. I love it. He says, "You, uh, every master was once a disaster. And, I love that. And you've got to embrace it, because once you embrace that, then you're not worried about making quote unquote mistakes. You're not worried about what is perceived as failure, etc. Um, yeah, this is great. So why is it important to realize that each of us is not that important? This was the best and probably hardest piece of advice, personal and professional, I'd ever gotten. I was complaining to a mentor of mine, and I was telling her, you know, how terrible my, my tale of woe. And she said, I don't understand. You have a successful marriage, a successful business. You've got healthy kids. What's happening? And I said, you know, I yell at my kids too much. I just, I'm, it's, it's, I feel stressed all the time. And she asked me to describe my day. And I described it to her. And I told her how, you know, I take my smartphone with me everywhere I go. And I look at it. And I could be in the office and with my family and with my community and with the causes I care about. And I'm always everywhere for all people at all times. And she looked at me and she was like, you, you, I don't understand. You're, you're just not that important. And she also was a Brooklyn girl. And so she laid it out exactly as is. And she was like, I don't get it. She said, if you're building a business that can't withstand you putting your phone in the trunk for an hour and going and getting a massage and taking care of yourself or taking your kids out for ice cream or, or reading a book and learning something new, you're either not building a business that's strong enough or you're a hell of a micromanager. So you got to fix that. And I took that advice to heart because what I realized was I was so busy showing up for all of the things for which I thought I was that important that I wasn't doubling down on the things where I actually was. And so I was saying yes to, you know, the drive-bys, the can I pick your brains, the you just got a minute, all of those sucker punch of a bake sale chairmanship asks that were like, oh, okay, you've asked, so I guess I should do it. And the truth is sometimes we're really just the closest proximate heartbeat. We're actually not that important. And so I, I ask people all the time, well, is this that important? Are you that important? Are you the only one or the best one who should solve this problem? And if you're not, where are you that important? Because that's where you should be spending your time. That's where you're going to shine. Mm. Do you follow or are you familiar with, familiar, are you familiar with Dan Sullivan, strategic coach? No, I'm not. Tell me. Uh, well, you know, uh, we could get into a whole thing, but it'll detour us too much. I, I would say to look him up, strategic coach Dan Sullivan. I say that because what you just expressed is in total alignment with the way he sees business, life, etc. And it's powerful what you just expressed. You know what the irony is? That when you are able to do that, you actually end up creating more value and therefore becoming more important. Yes, That's, absolutely. You know, it's like Zen. <laughs> well, and it's also liberating, right? So yeah. like, you know, when somebody asks you for something, you should think, is this thing going to move me forward in whatever my goal is that I'm trying to achieve? And if it's not, then you have to decide, well, is it going to help the other person? Is it going to bring me joy? Is it going to be something that in some way contributes to the calling, the overall calling I want to serve? And if it's not then 
you have to decide whether or not you're going to do it. The truth is there probably is someone better or smarter or more capable of helping them solve that problem. You just may be one of six emails they sent out looking for some advice. Mm. And maybe if you didn't respond in 20 seconds, but you waited 20 minutes or maybe 24 hours, God forbid, you might actually find that they've already solved their problem by somebody who maybe was more important and maybe mattered. And instead, you spent that time pursuing your own goals and getting better at the thing that you wanted. So yeah, I'm going to check that out. That mm-hmm. sounds that sounds great. Thank you. How has a long distance relationship enriched your life and the lives of others? Oh, you're reading my current stuff. <laughs> I just wrote that last week. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Um, I have to say, and, and to all of the people listening to your podcast, you are lucky listeners because I have done 20 podcasts in the last 10 days in advance of this book. And boy, not a lot of people do their homework. So I'm, that is, that's fantastic and, uh, and, and, and really heartening. So I'm, I love, I love that you are. Um, I, I, I am doing an unbelievable amount of media and speaking in advance of this book coming out. You know, when the Today Show calls you and says, hey, can you be in New York in two days? You know, you don't say no. You have to figure out how to change your life around to get there. So that you can change your life around when, because you've done it. And, uh, and, and what I realized is that I'm, I've now created an environment in which I basically have a long distance relationship with everyone in my life, with my husband, with my kids, with my clients, with my friends. And, and when I, when I, when I was thinking about, oh God, I'm finally home. I'm going to sit on the couch and just like look at Facebook and, and, and zone out. What I realized was that I was really doing them a disservice. And so I've spent the last few weeks really treating all of those relationships as if they were long distance relationships, you know, the kind when if you were away from your sweetheart for five days and then you saw them for two days, you'd be so locked in and loaded and so focused that I'm now doing that with all the relationships in my life. So rather than just being present and being proximate, I'm actually being actually super intentional and and present with a capital P rather than just, you know, being physically present. Um, And I'm also doing that with myself. So, you know, I was in Las Vegas giving a a talk last week and I knew that I was going to have three hours between when the talk ended and I had to get on a flight to leave or I had to go to the airport to leave. And I said, you know what, if I were in a long distance relationship with myself, what would I do right now? Would I sit and just scroll email and whittle away the time and lose those times in the in-betweens or would I do something special? So I signed up for a massage. I took myself out for a fancy tea um, at a nice hotel and I just had a recharge moment. And then when I got on the plane, I could spend that time answering the emails and doing all that. So then when I got home, I could actually be present for the people that I loved. Wow. Storytellers, um, we have just had what uh, Alex Mendozian calls a backpack moment. And that is, you hear something that is such a powerful reframe and a great aha for you that you could leave now with your backpack on and have gotten value from the event, which in this case happens to be the podcast. I know you're not going to leave, but if you did... She just gave you something that could change your entire life. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's exactly why you do this podcast. Like you could tell a story that says, I'm exhausted. This is terrible. I'm running from place to place to place. Or you could t- tell a story that says, this gives me a moment to compartmentalize my life and do the stuff that is annoying and, and, and you know, administrativa. I can do that in the quiet times when I'm alone so that I can actually really focus. Like it, it is... If, if you were in a long distance relationship and you had two days where you were with the person that you loved or deal or, or, or working on the business that you loved or, or pursuing the cause that you cared about so much, 
you would spend focus on that. But if those two days happen to be a Tuesday and a Thursday, you would forget them in between. And so I just decided I'm not going to forget the in-betweens anymore. That's fabulous. It's a wonderful mindset. Now, in your own words, you were a star chaser in your early life. What did that look like? Oh, that looked like me wanting the praise and the gold stars and the pats on the back and the you did so well. And it was because I was defining success as that. I was defining success as other people praising me, other people telling me I was great. And they were telling me I was great because I was doing the thing that looked good to them. And it was exhausting. I spent so much time trying to please other people. And I never actually spent a moment and said, well, if I'm trying to please everyone else, and if I'm trying to fill in all the right check boxes along all, you know, the whole right path to success, well, why am I not happy? And, I, you know, I started noticing over the thousands of people that I interviewed during my career in executive search, and I was the CEO of the company. So by the time people got to me, they were they were qualified for the job. They weren't always happy. And I thought it was really interesting that success didn't always bring happiness. And I looked back at myself and I said, okay, well, I tried to go to the right school and I tried to get the right job and I try to work in the right places and have the right internships and, 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 and do all the right things. And yet I feel it feels wrong. And, and I didn't, I wasn't enjoying myself. And so it wasn't until I stopped doing the treadmill, someone else's treadmill. And I decided a, whether or not I even wanted to be running or B, if I was at what rate and at what pace, then I was able to build a life where I could use my career to, um, to, to, to be aligned and consonant with the life that I wanted. And at that point I was able to create a world in which the, what I did matched the, who I was. Fabulous. And what impelled you to stop living somebody else's agenda? You know, I had a moment when I was at the, you know, I left the White House and, you know, you have this one moment in your career where you leave the White House, right? The the first job on your resume is the White House. You, know, you don't get to do that again. So you want to do it the right way. Now, the problem was I was 25 years old when I was leaving the White House. So I didn't really have a lot of skills or a lot of knowledge or a lot of, you know, anything um, where I could get the big job. I mean, I had a lot, but like I, it wasn't, I, I was 25. But what I did have was I had a Rolodex like a choke a horse. So what do you do when you are still an unrepentant idealist and low on skills, but high on connections, you go into executive search. And um, I, so I did what any idealists would do. And with, you know, <laughs> I was, I was arrogant and I was the idealist. So I said, what is the best search firm in the, in the world that does specifically mission driven nonprofit search? And I found it and I went to go work for them. Now, while I was there, what I realized was if I were going to use my lever of talent to make the world a better place, what that looked like was I am working on behalf of my clients who want to cure cancer or solve poverty, or end hunger, and I was helping them to do what they wanted to do. Now, when you're at a professional services firm, what that means is that you're on one side of the table, and they're on the other side of the table, and even though you have the same goal, in between you sets this profit and loss statement of your company. So I ended up realizing that I had two masters. I wanted to help change the world, and I was super aligned with my clients, but I had to please, I had to get the gold stars from my bosses who were running the search firm. And I just had this moment of rage where I thought this could be done better and smarter and faster and with more authenticity and more integrity and frankly with more profits than the traditional guys in the traditional uh, offices. 
and I and I went in to my boss and I you know I had this sort of Jerry Maguire moment where I'm like here's a new way to do this isn't it great and he basically said yeah thanks for playing not the way we do things around here you're welcome to stay but we're not going to do anything different and once I saw the solution to the problem that had been bothering me I couldn't unsee it and I had to pursue it and that's when I left and I started my own thing. And so that was the moment where I decided I don't want to be on that treadmill. I actually want to start something else. And that moment happened to be a moment when I had we had just bought a house. I had a six week old baby in my arms, my first kid. Um, I was in the attic of a, you know, a, a very small house um, in this sort of ragtag office. But, you know, there is a moment when you realize that your story has changed and you can't not you can't fight it any longer. And so I, I took that path. Hmm. You just made me think of a book you'd probably resonate with. It's called Psychologically Unemployable. <laughs> yeah, really. It's by Jeffrey Combs. It's quite wonderful. It's like um, a manifesto for entrepreneurs. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the guys that I profile in my book is a guy by the name of Scott Stratton, and he likes to say that entrepreneur is Latin for bad employee. Yeah, it's it's great. That's wonderful. Actually, it's French. Entrepreneur. Right? <laughs> That's true. Entrepreneur. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's Canadian. What can we do? <laughs> hey, I, I'm a Canadian right now. I know. I saw you were in uh, Toronto. I'm excited right. about that. I'll be there in April. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Well, if you have three seconds, we should meet. Yes, <laughs> you know? we definitely should. You know, um little detour here. You also profiled Josh Mance, don't you? I saw that he has been on your show. Josh and I met when we were both speaking on a, um, at, we were both volunteering to speak at an army base. And for, um, for, for, for your storytellers, um, a quick story about Josh Mance. Josh was, and you should definitely go back and listen to this. These, these two, you, you have two episodes on him. He is incredible. This is a guy who literally died on the field in Iraq and was brought back to life. 15 minutes later, miraculously with full um, mental capacity intact. And he, uh, he, he wrote a wonderful book um, called The Beauty of a Darker Soul. And I, I profile him. He is the start of my book. Uh, I went to go speak at, uh, through the nonprofit American Dream University uh, for an army, at, at a U.S. Army base in Japan. And the, the organizers from American Dream called me up and they said, well, we've got these six speakers. And they described them to me. And it was like the COO of Starbucks Canada and a, 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 a female vet who works with other female vets who are homeless. And she's describing all of them and then describes Josh. And I was like, OK, listen. I think I'm a pretty decent speaker. I make my living now as a keynote speaker, as a motivational speaker. Don't put me after the dead guy. I can't follow the dead guy. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't do it. <laughs> so I went right before the dead guy. Then he came on. And if you ever speak to military audiences, they are trained to intake information with stone faces. They're sitting bolt military upright and their arms are crossed and they're just staring at you. And I'm up there thinking, oh, my God, I'm, this is terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm crashing. I'm burning. I'm, I'm doing the worst job ever. And then they came up to me afterwards, and they were like, you said this and this and this and this, and that was amazing, and this is amazing. And it was like, wait a minute. You were the guy in the second row who was giving me death stares. But then when Josh came on stage, every member of that audience leaned forward in their chair, and their faces were, like, pulled in these, like, constraints of empathy and pain and fear and anxiety and love and adoration and and they were crying and it was it was a sight to behold and so when i when i had to sit down and write the book 
and I had to put stories of people throughout the book so that my readers could relate to them. I thought, well, every story I tell, someone's going to say, well, but I still have school or, well, I don't have, you know, I didn't have that successful business sale or, well, um, you know, I didn't have that injury, like something that happened that helped these people to, to, to change their lives and make, you know, get in consonance and become limitless. I thought, all right, nobody's going to be, be able to argue with the dead guy, right? Like if this guy literally died, and came back to life and still didn't feel like he could find his purpose and his calling and his consonants, then everyone can, you know, everyone's got, you know, knows that there's like an issue and they've got to figure it out. So I called him up and I was like, Josh, I gotta, I gotta ask you, like, is there any way I can profile you in my book? And I told him the reason and he was like, <laughs> he was like, have at it. He said, I don't need anyone to go to the dark place that I've been again, but if it helps them to get out of it, I'm all for it. Mm. Yeah, he was wonderful. I loved the two interviews we did. We did one that took us, you know, into that experience of dying and being revived. And then the second one was life after death, you know, and uh, he was he was quite wonderful. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I'm curious what I would did you have you identified the strong influences that led you to choose what you call the wrong path for your life? What led you there? I'm sorry, your your question cut out and I missed it. What were the strong influences that led you to choose what you call the wrong path for your life? Well, you know, the wrong path for my life is a pretty boring vanilla story. It's not, you know, I didn't get involved in, you know, with gangs and, you know, terrible, awful things. But I did. I the the reason that my wrong path is is as helpful to other people is that it is I think emblematic of a lot of our wrong paths. It looks from the outside like the right path. It looks like success. It looks like happiness. And certainly on social media, everybody looks like happiness. Um, but mostly, it started with little insidious things like this idea that you should have work life balance, that they should all be totally equal all the time, or that if you follow your passion, you'll never have to work a day in your life, or you know, a fourth grade teacher saying, "Hey, by the way, you know, you're not that great at math, but boy, you're sure argumentative, so you'd be a great lawyer." And that puts in that puts in place this this these like little seeds in your brain. That make you think, oh, well, if this person is a teacher and they are a person of authority and they their job is to shape people and they think I should be a lawyer, well, okay. And then you spend the next 15 years of your life pursuing this path where you think, well, if I am interested in solving big world problems and I'm sort of interested in politics, well, law should be the way to do that. So maybe I should become a lawyer and run for office mm. until one day you realize that's actually not what I want to do. And that's actually not my superpower. And that's not actually not where my greatness lies. And I can change the world doing other things. But God, I just wasted all this time. And I had, I, you know, the pursuit of the gold star is so exhausting, because you are you're not in consonance with who you are. So your your very best version of yourself is being tamped down so that you can be somebody else's version, you can pursue their stuff. And then it just puts you on this path that you feel like, well, I'm already this far gone. And then we get the sunk fallacy of, well, I've already done it, so now I should continue on this way, um, that obviously, I, I, obviously it's me. Obviously, I'm the problem because I pursued the path that everyone else said was the right path, and I'm still unhappy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's very, very big. I see it in a lot of lives today. Uh, I also, this has been on my mind, and you probably have dealt with it. Um, you may, it may deal with it in your book, that 
Why are many people paralyzed today by the seemingly limitless options for living extraordinary lives? You know, I think that we get almost like analysis paralysis, (laughs) <laughs> and we feel like it's it, I, I think that there is sometimes a lack of confidence in dreaming big dreams. And I think some of it comes from this idea that if you can dream it, you can do it. Right. There are so many big dreams that we could have. People are living extraordinarily interesting lives right now. And thanks to social media, we get to see some of them. So, you know, it does, in fact, expand our our in our horizons a bit. But, you know, what happens is when you're at the bottom of a mountain range and you look up at the top, you say, wow, I want to climb up to the top of that mountain. And then you get to the top of the mountain and you're like, oh, actually, there's six other mountains that have peaks that are higher than this one. I should really go climb up to those. And I think that we become limitless, uh, we become limited because we, we only see what's in front of us. Um, and we see other people who are on other mountains and think, oh, well, that's not me. I can't do that. That's too hard. That's for them. Um, but for me, you know, I, I think the idea of if you can dream it, you can do it is actually awful. I think that that, that holds us back so much because I could dream that I could be the queen of England all day long and nobody's bringing me tea and crumpets at 3 p.m. But you know, you mentioned in your intro that I've run three marathons. I ran three marathons because I ran a mile. And at the end of the mile, I went, oh, well, I'm 39 years old and I've never run a mile in my life. And this is the first time I've ever done anything athletic. Huh. Maybe I could run two miles. Maybe I could run three miles. Maybe I could run 3.1 and do a 5K. And at the end of the 5K, I thought maybe I could do a 10K. And I was never fast. I mean, people with like double jogging strollers were passing me and, 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 and not just on the downhills, like on the uphills too. And, and at, as I started putting one foot in front of the other, I was developing competence. And as I developed competence, I was like, oh, I actually have confidence to think of the next step and the next step and the next step. And so I think, I think people are paralyzed by having so many options because it's almost like there are so many, they don't know what the first step is. But sometimes the first step is just the first step. You take the first step and you're like, oh, I took the first step. I can now take the second. I can now take the third. And I, 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 would, I would encourage people to, to know that if there is something that they see other people doing that looks really interesting and they want to try it, they should try it. Failure is not finale. It's really just this fulcrum point from where learn and grow and change and shift. I Yeah, I love what you just said. The, the one thing about that uh, idea that you said, the idea that if you can dream it, you can do it is a terrible idea. I think it's a wonderful idea. I think that the challenge today is that people are seeing so many dreams that they're afraid to make a choice on any of them. Yeah, and I don't mean like it. You know, don't dream. I just think um, I think the dreaming is the dreaming is not the thing that's going to give you the confidence no. to stick with to stick with it when it's really hard. No. Um, when I was when I was in executive search, I used to look for hunger, weight, tenacity, speed, and grit. So hunger, weight, tenacity, speed, and grit. And and I think you can't be insatiably hungry for someone else's goal. And so having that dream. And having the hunger for it is great, but you have to develop that tenacity and that grit to be able to keep going after it. And, uh, you know, I do, I think there are, there are so, we live in an amazingly large world. In fact, I was 
talking to my son, my younger son last night, and he was telling me about the um, the things that he's doing right now. And I was thinking to myself, God, it's so incredible that he is mastering things that I just learned how to do a couple years ago. And, you know, where your lives, like where all of our lives can lead and where we can get to based on where we start and the options and technology that's available to us today, we don't even know. I, I, I was asked on another podcast what the advice I would give my younger self would be, what I would like to talk about on this podcast today. And I was like, well, if you told me that I'd be recording a podcast over the internet for people to listen to on their mobile phones, <laughs> none of those things existed, right? None of those things existed right now. So we can know ourselves and we can tell ourselves a story about who we are today. But even if we do know ourselves, and I doubt any of us do, we're all still growing and changing. The world around us is changing so fast that, you know, I, it's it's important to just keep turning around in every corner and seeing what opportunities are there. Because I really do fully believe that there's an opportunity around every single corner. If you just open your eyes and you look and you're willing to say yes. Willing to say yes. There it is right there. That's wonderful. Now, do you think that words like job, employee, and career are part of a dying vocabulary? And if so, what words are replacing them? Oh, I would love it if they were a dying vocabulary. I would That would be fantastic. You know, I, I think some, there are some people who have jobs, and there are some people who have careers, and there are some people who have callings. And I think the difference is that the job is the thing that you go to. It's sort of where you spend your time just so you can do the other thing that you'd rather do. I think a career is like a, it's a track, it's a path. You've put some research and some effort and some training into it and you're sort of in a, in a, you're in a groove for a little while and you may or may not love it, but it's, it's something that you do for probably a decade or two or sometimes three, knowing that when it's done, you'll do the thing you really want to do. And then I think a calling is that moment when the what you do matches the who you are. So in it, and a calling doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be this like higher purpose, lofty calling. Um, it's it's it it doesn't have to be you know Mother Teresa you know feeding lepers. It doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be you know feeding people in a homeless shelter. It it can simply be the thing, the gravitational force that is bigger than you. It's the thing that you want to do. It could be curing cancer. Great. It could be buying the Maserati in the beach house. Um, it could be starting your own business. You could be your own calling, right? If you want to be an entrepreneur. But it, it, I think that the, there, there is um, almost an evolution from job to career to calling. And I would love if those words were replaced with everyone having a calling and feeling like what they did matched who they are. I love that. I love that. The, uh, the evolution from job to career to calling. Thank you. What are four words to ban from your life? Oh, well, this goes right in line with that because the four words I want people to ban from their lives are, I'll be happy when. Mm. I'll be happy when I get the promotion. I'll be happy when I'm on vacation. I'll be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when is saying that you're not going to be happy now. <laughs> like, why can't we be happy now? Why are we waiting? What if, what if you got hit by a bus tomorrow and all the I'll be happy when that you've been building up is for naught. I mean, how sad would that be? So I, 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 I think that if, 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 
if you have something, a calling, something when you'll be happy when you're doing that thing, then I would encourage people to think about the connection that their everyday work has to, to serving that calling. Whether it's a problem that you want to solve, a business you want to build, a hobby that you want to grow, something that you want to do, something that you care about, the connection is really, is the time that I'm spending on this one big juicy life here on planet Earth does it matter? Does it have purpose? And it only has purpose if it is serving that calling. I absolutely love that. Guys, by the way, we just had another backpack moment. Okay. You can forget everything else, maybe. You know, you say, oh, well, she said so many things. It's okay. Take a <laughs> breath and just go, oh, I'll be happy when. And then think about that. <laughs> That's it. Wonderful. Now, why should people stop asking, how can I help? And what should they ask instead? So I get it. I gave a TEDx talk several years ago on this topic because I had a little bee in my bonnet about the idea that when bad things happen in the world, we say, oh, how can I help? And then what we do is we end up sending teddy bears to um, monsoon ravaged children. And we think, oh, that'll be great. They'll feel terrific. And um, I don't know if you know this this statistic, but when, when a gunman killed 20 children and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, 67,000 teddy bears descended on that tiny town, right? 67,000. Now, what do you think happens to all those teddy bears? Um, they get thrown away. Yeah, some of them get distributed. Some of them get into the hands of these tiny, you know, as tiny rays of hope in these these children's lives. But most of them get they most of them get thrown to dumpsters, waiting to be incinerated. And what happens is we spend a lot of time patting ourselves on the back and feeling good, um, feeling comforted by this short term cathedral of how can I help. When what we're not doing is saying the money that was used to buy and ship and store and distribute and, yes, incinerate those teddy bears actually could have been used for grief counseling or mental health services or common sense gun control or wherever it is that you stand on the political spectrum. But the the idea that that we are building these cathedrals of short-term comfort, maybe we're helping our own ego more than we're helping the, the problem at hand, I would rather see people spend the hard yards to create long-term institutions uh, where, where we're actually creating creating long-term change. And so, yes, like the, there is short-term Band-Aids. We need to do that, absolutely. But we can't just be satisfied with that. And then I took that frame in my own life and I started saying, huh, how many times a day when somebody presents me with a problem do I say, oh, how can I help? And, you know, a friend of yours will come to you and say, oh, I just really need to lose 10 pounds. Oh, that stinks. How can I help? Or I've got this project that needs to be finished. How can I help? Mom, I can't do my homework. How can I help? And if you changed the question to a better question, which is, well, what needs to happen for you to succeed in this? What needs to happen? What needs to happen for you to lose 10 pounds? What needs to happen so that your homework gets done? What needs to happen to get you to the next place in that project? Suddenly, the person who's asking the question doesn't look at you as now the person responsible for upholding the answer. You're helping them to figure out where they need to go next. And maybe you are the answer, or maybe the answer is the guy in the next cubicle, and they should go talk to them. That's fine, too. But it's, it's, it's the, the shift between how can I help and what needs to happen changes the 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 entire conversation to forward moving and not just sort of wallowing in the problem absolutely love it remember i mentioned dan sullivan before 
Yes. He has a question for people. He says, three years from now, and I'm going to paraphrase it. I remember exactly. But three years from now, if you and I are working together, what would have to have changed in your life or in your business for you to um, feel that this was worth it? So they're telling him exactly what they really need from him, and then he will either say that he can or show them that he can provide it or not. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. Makes a lot of sense. What are the four elements that you need to find and live your purpose? And attached to that question is, why is purpose at the forefront of people's minds today? So we talked a little bit about some of the elements of consonance earlier. And, and you know, we all have this similar goal, right? We want success to feel meaning, meaningful and we want our work to matter, right? That's how we get purpose. That's the thing where we sort of got this at the, at the, at the top of our mind. Like, does it, does it even matter, right? And at every generation this is happening, we're seeing it. We're seeing it with millennials who are having conversations in the workplace about about the culture of the company and what the company stands for. We're seeing it with boomers who are retiring at the rate of 10000 a day and want to do one last big thing that really matters. And we're seeing it with Gen Xers who were kind of caught in between young kids and aging parents and who are feeling desperately like the time that they spend away, the time that they spend working needs to actually count for something. And so we have this this similar goal of, of wanting our work to matter and wanting success to be meaningful, but we're feeling stuck and we're being told, you know, grind harder and hustle faster and, and you know, and, and, and it's all about how fast you get to this unflinching myopic definition of success. But in order to actually feel successful, it, it has to be successful to us. In order for your life to feel right for you, it actually has to be right for you. And so this is the, the framework of the book, the idea of consonants. So consonance comes from four elements, and each of these four elements have to be present in your life, but at every age and at every life stage, they're going to be present in different amounts. So the first is calling. We talked about calling a bit, this gravitational pull towards something larger than yourself, a business you want to build, a leader who inspires you, a societal ill that you wish to remedy, a cause you wish to serve, something that gets you out of bed in the morning with excitement. The second is connection. Connection gives you sight lines into how your everyday work serves that calling by either solving the problem at hand, growing the company's bottom line, or reaching your goal. The third is contribution. And contribute while connection is about the work, contribution is about you. And contribution is an understanding of how this job, this brand, this paycheck contributes to the community you want to belong to, the person you want to be, or the lifestyle you'd like to live. So contribution is all about, does this job give me the money, the flexibility, the value so that I can be the person who I I feel matters in the world? And then lastly is control. And control reflects how you individually, personally, are able to influence the amount of connection to that calling you have and the amount of contribution that work brings to your life. And for me, when I was 21 years old working on that presidential campaign, I had all the calling in the world. I was worth my weight in ramen soup and idealism. But I had no connection. I was gophering coffee. But I, I didn't matter at all. But boy, did I have contribution because even though I wasn't making a lot of money, I was 
20 years old. I didn't need a lot of money. It didn't matter to me then, but I knew that I was manifesting my values in the world in a way that really was consonant with who I was. And if he won, I might get a pretty interesting job out of the deal, right? First job in the White House, that doesn't stink. And then in terms of control, I had no control, but again, I didn't, that was not where I was in my life right now. Now, as I'm moving, you know, I'm in my, I'm in my late 40s, calling matters to me and I do want my work. I do want to, you know, I want this book to come out. I want it to do well. I want to be able to get on stages and talk to people and help change their lives. But connection, because I have so many, uh, I have so many responsibilities in terms of my family and my business and my community and uh, my, my, my uh, political and philanthropic activity, uh, connection has to matter. So I'm not going to get on an airplane and fly you know, three different stops to get to some very small media, uh, uh, you know, media uh, uh, market for something that doesn't really matter. And it's not going to give me return on the message that I want. Um, contribution, boy, it, I am out there right now talking about these things that you can tell my voice really do matter to me. And then in control, I, I am an entrepreneur. I'm a serial entrepreneur. So I am always interested in making sure that I'm the one who's behind the driver's seat of the connection and the contribution that I have towards this calling. So for all of your storytellers, they may say, oh, yeah, I really need more of this. I really need less of that. A great place for them to start, if they're interested, is I actually created an assessment at LimitlessAssessment.com. And they can go and it's a, it's a quiz. It takes like 15 minutes. There's about 60 questions. And it walks your, it'll walk your storytellers through the four C's of consonants. And at the end of it, they'll get a beautiful little radar chart that has um, one chart that has the elements of calling, connection, contribution, and control that they currently have in their lives and then a second one, which is overlaid, that gives them the four elements of calling, connection, contribution, and control that they currently want in their lives. And they'll be able to see where they're out of consonants, and then they'll get some tips on what they can do to sort of move those charts closer together. Beautiful. You said it's limitless assessment, or is it plural? It's limitlessassessment.com. Dot com. Yeah, absolutely, everybody. Take advantage of that. that that's wonderful. Do you invest in formal personal development training of your own? I do. I think formal I think I think professional development is fantastic and I think you can get it informally through podcasts through books um just by being a student of seeing other watching other people do things that are amazing. And I mean that in lots of different ways. I, I don't play professional football, but I love watching um I loved watching the Super Bowl. I love watching I'm sorry to people who are not Patriots fans, but Tom Brady, who is 41 years old, who's playing at the top of his game, that takes skill and effort, but it also takes just all those hard yards in the dark when nobody sees doing that work, and it takes focus and determination and to, to, to come back and win a game when you are down on the defense, and you have to continue. You have, he could have told himself a story, which was like, this is terrible, the, their defense is great. I don't know what I can, I don't know what I can do. I guess it's not going to be an offensive game. I'm an offensive guy. This is not going to work. It's not my game. But he was able to stay in the game mentally and he was able to come back and to continue to bring himself to the field every single time. And so even though I don't play professional football, I could get informal professional development by watching that and taking those lessons. But there's no substitute for formal professional development. When I did that TEDx talk, it was the very first talk that I ever really gave. I, I had done presentations on behalf of uh, my firm. I'd spoken to, you know, I'd done workshops at conferences. I'd spoken to boards you know, and, and, and a numeral amount of times. 
but I had never um, given a, sp- I'd never performed a speech, and that was my first one. And it was TEDx Cambridge, which is one of the one of the top TEDxes outside of you know Big Ted. And I was at the Boston Opera House, three mezzanines of theater lights, um, twenty six hundred people. You have a background in acting. This was terrifying to me. I got up on stage. It was no notes, no net. Me and the red circle and the theater Klieg lights looking at me. And I walked out and I took a deep breath. And my sister, who had flown in from Texas uh, to watch this, said to me after, she said, I thought you were going to pass out in that moment. But I just looked at the audience and I looked at all of the mezzanines, I looked at all the people. And there is nothing so loud as the deafening silence of 2,600 people waiting for you to start speaking. It's a terrifying moment. But then I started and I did the talk and I finished. And at the end of it, I thought, wow, that would have been so much better if I knew what I was doing. Now, I had great training from the TEDx people um, it, it, that helped me form the talk and perform the talk. But after that talk, like I, I knew in the moment that there was more in me and I had to figure out how to do it. And after that talk, I, I got offered uh, to go out to Boise, Idaho and to keynote a conference and they offered me money. And I thought, wait, what? <laughs> this is This is a job? People get money for speaking? Wait, <laughs> tell me more about this. And so I got on an airplane and 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 I and I uh, and I went out there. But before I did that, I thought to myself, if I'm going to do this as a professional, I should be a professional. I should get some professional training. And so I signed up for a thing called Heroic Public Speaking um, through Michael and Amy Port. And uh, them combined with Tamson Webster, who um, was the one who helped me with the with the TEDx uh, talk and who does amazing uh, work helping speakers. Between the two of them, I've really invested in not just how do you how do you show up on stage, but what is the content? What is the message? How do you perform? What is every um, what is every piece of the performance actually? Uh, communicating to the audience and how do you do it in this intentional, purposeful way. Now, I can tell you, I don't actually know if I love public speaking or not. Um, it's my career right now, but I'm doing it because I'm, I love the message that I'm bringing to people and I'm fascinated by the, the mastery of the art of public speaking. And so I'm so steeped in professional development right now because I think if you're going to do something there's no reason to do it part way. If you're going to do it, if it's worth your time, if it's worth your energy, it's worth your distraction from everything else in life, you really want to do it 100%. So that's what I'm trying to do. Wow. I love the answer. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I teach, uh, I don't call it public speaking because it puts the emphasis on speaking as opposed to communicating an authentic message with your whole being. Yes. So, and I've been teaching that to business people for a long time because of my background in dramatic communication, which is acting. So when you say stuff like, well, I don't know if I love public speaking, you could get to a point where it becomes as natural to you as breathing, and I don't think you'll ever stop loving breathing, but that's a, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. But well, it's you, an interesting thing because I was talking to a friend last week, and I did 
so many podcasts last week. I think I told you I did like 20. And by the end of it, I, I, I told my husband that he should he should know that I was not planning on speaking the entire weekend, which might have been good news to him. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I, I, I was so tired of talking and especially talking about myself. And then as I was flying down to New York on Friday morning to do to do another one that films and they, they tape in person. Uh, a, another fellow speaker texted me and asked me how I was doing, and I was sort of bemoaning the the fact that I was I was very uncomfortable with this whole self promotional thing. It was just kind of relentless. And he said, you know, he said you could see it as the LGO show. This is all about Laura, or you could see it as this is your way to help get a message out in front of people that will help them. And think about the people, the mentors we talked about earlier, the people that you've had in your life who have put messages out into the world. And because of them, your world has been better. And so I think the framing of that for me, it's not self-promotional. It's actually bringing this message that I know will be so useful to people out in the world is the same as you are communicating this thing that is so important to you with your whole being is not public speaking. Public speaking is this, you know, it gives all of us nightmares. But communicating something you love with your whole being is definitely something I could get behind. Oh, I love, listen, we'll have another conversation about this because this is very, I mean, this is the core of who I am, you know. But in addition to the professional development, what about personal development, uh, such as working with, mindset teachers like Anthony Robbins or any of the thought leaders who are helping people to develop a greater self-awareness, confidence, and mindfulness? You know, it's an interesting question for you to ask because I would probably say that there are a lot of people in my life who say that I'm that person for them. Um, and I, 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 it's an interesting question to think about where do I go to the well to have that also. And I think for me, it's it's part of those are the people that are in my tribe. They're in what I call a family. You know, the family or your the friends that you actually wish you got as blood relatives. <laughs> it's like your family's okay, but your family those are the people you find in adulthood when you know who you are. Uh, I a few years ago I took up rowing, um, and I I on a whim tried out for this competitive rowing team. And so I'm now on a, a women's competitive rowing team that has about 40 members who range in age from 24 years old to 68 years old. And these women are, I mean, they are tough. They are incredible. They go for it with every fiber of their being. And I am, for me, the, the, I, as somebody who's always been an entrepreneur, as somebody who was picked last for every athletic team ever in my life, who never ran a mile before I was 39 years old, um, to be on a team is an interesting experience. To be on a sports team is a fascinating experience and a humbling one at that. And to do a sport like rowing, where you're not just on this team and being in your center of excellence, you're actually having to do the same thing in unison with seven other people for maybe your max heart rate for, you know, four to eight minutes is pretty challenging. And so just the coaching that we get in that and 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 the role modeling that I see both from the 25-year-olds and from the 68-year-olds has really been a um it's it's really been a, a a real mindset shift for me because it's really talked to me a lot about how you show up for other people in your fullest and best self all the time because if you don't you know the boat doesn't go great answer wonderful i love it too cuz it's so authentic it's not what everyone would 
just naturally say. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, and, I've, I've I've worked with some professional coaching clients that have actually. I had one guy, um, actually in Calgary, in 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 Canada, who uh, said to me a couple weeks ago, he's like, you know, I've done Gary V, I've done Tony Robbins, man, they got nothing on you. <laughs> Oh, I feel like I should. I feel like I should meet those guys and get on their stage. <laughs> well, you should, perhaps, you know. Uh, but you know, you've got your own. Your own. You are. You are excitingly, authentically you. That's it. You know. You know. I think everyone should be excitingly, authentically them. We're all quirky, right? We all have a freak flag, and it's when we're in that moment. You know, there's this there's this idea of the fundamental state of leadership that I read about this in Harvard Business Review years and years ago. And the fundamental state of leadership, we think about leaders as being these out front people, the ones that are in center stage, that have the spotlight, that have the bold face names. And the truth is that every one of us is a leader to somebody in our lives. And that fundamental moment of leadership, like think about a time when you were at your very best. You were firing on all cylinders. You were making it rain. You were closing the deal. You were amazing. Or think about it as a moment when you were quietly helping a loved one through a tough situation. You were, you know, helping a colleague through something that was difficult or embarrassing or hard. Maybe you were by yourself banging your head against the wall, but you finally had a breakthrough. And think about who you were in that moment. What kind of energy were you using? What kind of volume, you know, were, were, were you using? Um, were you with people? Were you alone? Was it light? Was it dark? Like, who were you? What muscles were you exercising in that moment? And that's when you're in your fundamental state of leadership. And if we can live lives where we spend more of our time trying to lean into that person rather than trying to lean into this myopic, unflinching definition of the fastest and most expedient way to the corner office is success, then we actually can not only be better versions of ourselves, we can actually enjoy it while we're doing it. You call that the fundamental... The fundamental state of leadership, because yeah. you know when when I when I was young, I thought the leader was the person who ran for office, who who sat in the you know in the senator's chair or sat in the White House and made all the changes. And what I learned was actually I could be a pretty good leader being the person behind the scenes. Now it's funny that my career has come full circle, and now I'm back in center stage again. But I you know there's a picture of me. I do a lot of political fundraising in my in my avocation. There's a picture of me in my house with a with a United States Congresswoman, um, and she is on. You know, she's 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 in. She she she's the person who's giving the speech, but she's blurry, and I'm like standing five feet away from her, and I'm in sharp focus, and I'm just looking at her with this look of pride and adoration, and I was so. I was so happy that she was doing what she was doing and she was where she was and she was so um, passionately talking about the changes she wanted to make if she were elected. That's my happy place. I love being stage left, supporting people, seeing their greatness and helping them achieve it. And and yet I now know through this, you know, the book that I have to I have to find that other person inside of me and be in center stage. But the way to do that is to be this quirky self and i mean i could i could get in center stage and i can suddenly be speaker voice and here's how you do things or i could just get up there and just be my freak flag holding self and i think people attach much more to authenticity than they do to polish and 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 flash and so 
I, I think that if we can all find that fundamental state of leadership and just live there and love there, boy, can we have, wouldn't we have great lives? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on with that. That's wonderful. Uh, just a, a factual thing before you mentioned that you had studied with two people for actual um, public speaking, heroic public speaking. What was the other? So there's heroic public speaking, which is Michael and Amy Port, and then there's the red thread, and that's Tamsin Webster. The red thread. Okay, great. What do you do for fun and relaxation? <laughs> you know, I everything I do is for fun and relaxation. I love what I do. I, I can hear it. Yeah. I'm so lucky. I and and I've always loved what I've done. When I when I would go in to pitch clients when I ran the search firm, I would tell them what we did and how we did our work and why we did our work and they would say almost almost every time God, you really seem like you love what you do. And I'd say, yeah, well, how, how could I not, right? I'm getting to do the greatest things in the world using my greatest skill set and, and with the greatest people. And, um, and, and, of course, they would hire us because you want somebody who's happy. Um, so for fun and relaxation, I, you know, I've got, I've, I've got, um, I've got, I've got teenage kids uh, who happen to love me and also still like me. So I'm trying to <laughs> capitalize on that for as long as I can. Um, I have an adorable year and a half old uh, Doberman who um, has all sorts of things wrong with her. Um, she's such a lemon, but she's really fun to, to love on. And because she has so many things wrong with her, she just is like such a snuggler all the time. Um, I've got a, I've got a great husband who has phenomenal hobbies that some of which I enjoy and some of which I have no interest in. And so we have great time to overlap. And then I also have great time to just be my myself, but I am, um, you know, everything that I do really goes towards this idea of trying to make the world a better place by trying to make people better versions of themselves so that they can do it. And I, I think the question of what do you do for fun and relaxation um, sets up for me a mindset of, well, everything else I do is for, 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 for not fun and stress. And, mm. and, and I, you know, I think there's no such thing as work-life balance. I think there's got to be work-life alignment. And so if what you do at work is not what you do for life, then what are you living for? Backpack moment. yeah absolutely what is your favorite book besides your own (laughs) oh uh, my it's definitely not my own um you know this is sort of a this is uh i've gotten i've read a lot of really interesting books um over the course of uh of 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 writing this and forming my own but um i will give you a really strange book actually which i read a couple decades ago and has really stuck with me. It's called Stones from the River by Ursula Hegie. And it is, um, it's actually a, a, a fiction book. And it's a story, it's a story of a, a dwarf named Trudy Montag, Montag, who is living in Hitler era uh, Germany or Switzerland. I can't, I can't actually remember the, the, the specifics. Um, what I remember about it is that because she's a dwarf, she can kind of like sit around and every, nobody pays attention to her because they think she doesn't matter. And she was able to hear all of this interesting information about people's stories and who they were and what they cared about. And because of it, when the war broke out, she was actually able to help people and save people. And so the story, the, this 
this fictional story sort of follows her through decades of, of her life and when she's young and doesn't matter and then when people, you know, completely disregard her, but she's actually able to make changes behind the scenes and as she ages and, and how this comes back um, in her life and, and she starts seeing the people that she helped um, survive and thrive and live wonderful lives. I've just always loved that because I feel like the world looks at us a certain way and we look at ourselves a certain way, but we get to impact and influence who we are and the stories that we tell ourselves. And she in this story um, could have just been thrown away and yet she lived a, a great and wonderful and full life because she decided to tell herself a different story. Mm, beautiful. I'm going to look that one up. Do you have a favorite quote? Uh, my favorite quote is probably Eleanor Roosevelt. Do the thing which you think you cannot do. Yes, that's wonderful. Do the thing which you think you cannot do. I would say my second favorite is probably Laurel Thatchell Urek, who said, well-behaved women seldom make history. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and spell her name for me. It's Laurel Thatcher, and then Ulrich is U-L-R-I-C-H. In fact, I have a poster of that hanging in my office that a couple of my 20-something uh, rowing teammates made. There are the three of us, and we're standing in our rowing trow, which, if you know anything about rowing, is basically like a, a Lycra unisuit. It doesn't leave much the imagination you're just there and with you know muscles and you know it's and and we are we are making our fiercest faces and it's the three of us standing there like staring down the camera and at the bottom of it it says well-behaved women seldom make history and they gave that to me for my birthday last year i i it's possible that i am i may be their professional development person i may be their mascot i'm not really sure but i i work out with a lot of the younger women on the team and i think they're just sort of amazed that I can even barely keep up. <laughs> they keep me around. <laughs> Beautiful. Laura, if you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing in the world, what would it be? I think given this moment in time where we are today, I would, if I could change one thing in the world, I would, I would want people to see each other. I think we don't see each other anymore. We don't listen to each other. We don't talk to each other. I spend a lot of my time, as I mentioned, raising money for political candidates, and um, and so I'm known to be fairly, you know, ide ideologue on one side of the of the aisle. And yet, I have lots of friends on the other side of the aisle where I have great, deep, resonant conversations because we see each other for who we are and not just labels. Mm. And so, I think if I could change anything, I think I would, I think I would delabel all of us. I love it. It's true. It would make uh, it would make the world incredibly tolerant. Yeah, yeah. How? And it goes back to this idea of stories. You know, it goes back to this idea of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about other people. Yeah, absolutely. What a wonderful thought! How can people contact you? So people can find me on all the socials at Hey LGO. So that's Hey. L-G-O. Um, they can find me at lauragassneroding.com or um, I've got a landing page for this particular um, podcast for your storytellers, which is lauragassneroding.com slash change, which will have any of the links that they want, my blog posts, the link to the limitlessassessment.com website and everything else that they would need. 
Fantastic. And your book is going to officially be available in April, correct? My book uh, publishes April 2nd, but it is available for pre-orders on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and anywhere else you might buy fine books. And the book, (laughs) again, is Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. And you got to hear that book, Come Alive Today with Laura. Any final thoughts for our storytellers? My final thought would be that there is always a moment in your life where you have one voice that says, you can do this, and one voice that says, what are you, crazy? You're going to (laughs) die. What are you, nuts? And only one of those voices gets to win, and the only person who gets a vote about that and the only person who gets a voice about that is you. Wow. That is the ultimate backpack moment. Thank you. You were absolutely wonderful. Not only the the content, but if your energy were any higher, I'd be levitating. <laughs> well, people often will leave having uh, having having coffee with me and say, "God, I feel like I've got lightning bolts in my veins. I could walk through walls." And like, good. Go do that. What's amazing is that I don't actually drink coffee, so I'm not even caffeinated. Oh, my God. Imagine if you did. (laughs) Well, when we were were building our house, um, it wasn't going well um, at one point, and the architect was like, well, we should have a meeting. And I said, good, let's have a meeting at 7 a.m. And he said, okay, should I bring you coffee? And I said, would you like to see me caffeinated? And he's like, actually, on second thought, how about I just bring you a donut? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again. Thank you. This was great fun.